So we are in the Gospel of Luke. Um, we are in Luke chapter 20. Remember that we're in what we call Holy Week or the last week of Jesus's earthly life. Um, Jesus is being tested. He, he is passed with flying colors, a, a trap that was set for him about taxes. And now the, some Sadducees come to him. And just a, just a kind of um, a, a very quick landscape note here. Among the religious leaders of Jesus' day, there are scribes that kind of work with the Pharisees. There are religious leaders. Pharisees is a, a growing group, not yet dominant. Probably the dominant group, though, they're on their decline and way out, are the Sadducees. The Pharisees will end up being the group that kind of continues Judaism from Jesus' day. But at the time, there is another group called the Sadducees, and, and they argue over a few fundamental differences, one of them being that the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. And so they are up to this task of questioning Jesus. And whether that's on purpose or whether it's just natural that they would be the ones asking, we don't know. But let me read you the conversation, then we'll come back and talk about it. Some Sadducees, those who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus, and they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man should marry the widow and raise children up for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, then the second, and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Why don't we stop there for a minute, Michael? So uh, th this is, again, one of those traps, and we see here the, these people putting this question to Jesus that really gets just pushed to absurdity. Um, imagine there are seven brothers. The, each one of them dies in succession, so the next one in line marries the wife, trying to provide for her. There were laws, there were Jewish laws about these things. Um, it sounds very strange to us, but remember that in Jesus' day, a widow is extremely vulnerable, and so the the commitment and the responsibility for caring for that widow could be passed along family bonds to a brother or to extended family. Um, how much that was practiced in Jesus' day is debated somewhat, but those laws are on the books. They, they all know what they're referring to. And then we get this ridiculous scenario spun out where this happens um, six times. And finally, then the question about both resurrection and the question to, to sort of overthrow Jesus is, whose wife is it? Yeah, so we know that once you get down the line as far as this, you're sort of living in, in that beautiful historical kind of precedent, and it's, it's popped up time over time. Christians uh, have historically had times where we debated how many angels could fit on the pin of a needle. That's a real thing. Uh, you know, there's there's moments where you get so far into the weeds uh, that you're no longer interested in things of substance. Now, they would say that the, the conversation about resurrection matters and that they're trying to get to the center of that. But Clint, I mean, at, at the point of which you're saying, you know, that we have all of these brothers and, and then each one dies child 
childless. You're essentially looking for the the most fine tooth, uh, really exposition of the law. You know the 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 devils in the details here, and and the point that they're going to try to make to Jesus is going to be trying to catch him in the the weeds of the details. I mean, it's just the the question is in some ways fitting their emphasis. I mean, we know the Sadducees were very interested in the law and the application of the law, but in another way, I think this is this is kind of ad nauseum them taking an argument as far as it can possibly go and breaking it. Yeah, it's 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 a shallow question. It's not a real question. It's just some people who think that they have sprung another trap on Jesus. And so let, let's hear the response here. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But to those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry or are given. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they're like angels and are children of God being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, he is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him another question. So Jesus essentially, in, in Bible language here, says you don't, you don't understand what you're saying. That heaven, the, the kingdom, the resurrected life is not like this life. There isn't giving and taking because those people now live a new life. They are like angels. They are holy. They are heavenly. They are children of God, children of the resurrection. And, and then he gives this idea that Moses could address God as the God of his forefathers because they still lived or because of the idea that they now lived with God. And, and then he says, ultimately, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, which is a wonderful phrase, not only answering their question to some extent, but also kind of teaching the idea that you should probably spend less time worrying about how things are in heaven and more so worrying about the kind of life that will allow you to be alive after your death. You, you have plenty to do in the here and now without coming up with these ridiculous questions. And then an interesting note at the end here, Michael, some scribes, and probably scribes are on Team Pharisee arguing for resurrection and not on the Sadducees group. They say, you have answered well, Jesus. In other words, you put them in their place, but they're afraid to ask him any more questions as well because he has this um, sort of habit of springing traps on the people who meant for them to work on him. So one thing we might miss if we rush through the end of this text, Clint, is the irony of this, that they're coming to Jesus in the middle of what we would call Holy Week, this last week between his coming into Jerusalem and his death. And the debate about what happens to people after they die is should not be lost on us that Luke is doing some really interesting kind of narrative teaching multiple layers deep. On one hand, he's telling us about this encounter that Jesus had with some very influential, very thoughtful religious leaders who are trying to catch him in, you know, the 
very tiniest details of the application of Old Testament law and, and its impact upon an understanding of resurrection. But here, Jesus is teaching about what happens to those who are on the other side of life itself. And it shouldn't be lost on us that, that this is in many ways Jesus also teaching what is going to happen to him, what he will be the first fruits of for everyone that will come after him. Because the earliest Christians who read this, this text would serve multiple purposes. On the first, it would just simply serve as a teaching text. It would teach a story of Jesus and a way that he taught revelation, uh, this revelation of resurrection, and, and he did so even in the face of some people who were trying to trick him. But on a deeper level, here Jesus is now describing for the earliest Christians, this is what our resurrected hope is in. This is just a small glimpse in what Jesus Christ has done for us and the new life, the new kingdom that he's ushering in, the one that extends beyond our understanding of life itself. So, I, I simply point this out, Clint, to say that Luke is a masterful writer and teacher. He is giving us thoughtful, carefully written, carefully resourced uh, expositions of Jesus's life. And the way that this is told, I think, is not accidental, that we see Jesus fighting back this false faith, this, this not good faith argument, but simultaneously teaching something true about himself, about what he's going to do in just a few days, and then also the hope of resurrection for, for all of the days after him. And, and all of that's happening simultaneously in a text like this. Yeah, and I, I, again, I think an important takeaway here is found near the end, this idea God is not the God of the dead. You know, we, we think about the past, but... The idea of God being timeless, the idea of life being eternal or extended, the idea that God is the God of life, this has been an important promise to Christians, that there is more to the message of the gospel, there is more to the teaching and the presence of Christ than what happens in the moments that we are walking around here on earth or that we're drawing breath here on earth, that there's something more to the story. And early Christians, as did some some Jews of Jesus' day, um, leaned into that hope drastically. What, what I think is intriguing about this, Michael, is the idea that um, in our day and age, it's normally a non-believer, an atheist, maybe someone from another religion that tries to kind of back you into the corner and spring a trap about the Bible or about faith in some kind. It, it's fascinating as we read this to see that it was people of the same faith doing it to one another. You know that that they had differences on ideas, but that these are religious people trying to trap Jesus, and I think that makes that unusual in our experience. Yeah, I think your point is really well made. I think that we can take it even further, and we should name there is a devotional reading of that here. Jesus is doing a really interesting and generative interpretive thing when he starts talking about God's revelation to Moses at the, at the burning bush. That text was and remains one of the most well-known Old Testament passages because God is named in it. it. It becomes this place where God commits to carry the people out of Egypt, and in the commitment to Moses in the encounter of that place, God reveals something new about God's self. And 
what I think is unbelievable about the reference here is when Jesus reads that and Jesus speaks about the way that God claims, you know, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this living relationship that God has. And then Jesus, you know, he puts aside for a moment the uh, the amazing fact, the amazing reality that it was at the bush that God names himself and establishes a relationship with Moses and the Israelites to follow. But Jesus looks at that moment and says, no, God also claims all of those who came before. And so then the promise that Jesus offers in, in this interpretation is to say, uh, that God has already been for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the hope and promise of their future, which is held in the hope and promise of their resurrection. So, Jesus's reading of the Old Testament here, I think, is really, really interesting. It has something, to your point, Clint, to say to us, people who now live thousands of years later, uh, we, especially if you've been Christian for some time, you've lived with this word resurrection in there at some point. Um, this is a an idea that we're comfortable with, but it was, number one, debated in Jesus' day. There was real disagreement about that. And as we see Jesus reading his Bible, the Old Testament, Exodus, we see him doing some incredible things to remind us today that the God who we think of as being the God of old remains the God of today and promises to be the God of the future, and that's good news for everyone of all time. And if you think that that's an interesting point today, it is, I would say, let's wait and hold that in view. We're going to get to the Lord's Supper. We're going to get to the upper room. Uh, that text is going to just bring that in in different shades, how God continues uh, by the work of Jesus to be faithful and present. So, Clint, it's a big text in many different ways. In, in one way, you could read past this and say, oh, look, another debate, Jesus and some people trying to trick him. In another way, where this story has been placed, it has a kind of, I think, prominence over some of these other conflict stories that we've had. And I think it's really has a lot to teach us, actually. Yeah, it, it is a big text, but I think ultimately a helpful one as it reminds us, you know, you have some people that want to create a framework in which God is about rules and what are the exemptions, what are the loopholes, what are the standards, and Jesus won't have it. Jesus says that that's not what God's about. God's not about death. God's about life. God isn't about the past. God isn't about the ins and outs of legal rules. God is about life. God is about the future. God is about um, creating and extending and remaking and you know, I, I appreciate that at the end, at least some of the teachers recognized, some of the scribes at least recognized in Jesus' words a, a wisdom that briefly, it's not going to last long, but briefly transcended the tension between them. So it, a, a rare compliment in this section of the scripture. Though they, they're silenced again, right? I mean, we yes. have that. Verse 40, they, they don't have another question. Go back, verse 26, they're amazed by his answer and they become silent. Here we have this repeated theme mm -hmm. where they come to Jesus with these traps. Jesus responds, they're silenced. They're quieted again. I would only point out their words may be silenced. Luke goes out of his way to make sure that we're clear. The, 
the vitriol and the rising anger in their hearts. I mean, this isn't in today's text, but the conflict with Jesus is only raising. We've already had reference to they, they would have liked to have grabbed him, except they were afraid of the crowds. The the tension as Jesus silences them, he's only they're only quiet in heart or in their in their speech, not in the things that they're devising. And and Luke's ratcheting up the the causation for why they're so angry at Jesus. The next time Jesus mentions scribes, it, they will not be happy about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, That's a good segue. We uh, we hope you'll join us for that. Uh, certainly glad to have you with us today. We look forward to continuing this study with you. Uh, hope you're well, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.